This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The poem says, Human voices wake us and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. On October 8th of last year, it was a Thursday, Uh, The American poet Louise Glick was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, and when I found out, I was on my way uh, to the grocery store, and I recorded one of her poems in the parking lot and posted it right away. And as of now, that is the earliest post that still exists on this podcast from October 8th of last year. There were some Earlier, uh, there were some other poems, I think, by Seamus Heaney and R.S. Thomas and a few others that I recorded and posted here before then. But very quickly, it struck me that uh, the poem by Louise Glick and also uh, the date itself was significant enough to count as the very beginning of this podcast. I mentioned beforehand... uh, I think in a few episodes, that uh, as far back as the sixth or seventh grade, I imagined uh, the idea of something like this. Uh, Back then, the idea was to be on the radio. Um, I had, uh, I spent my my childhood and uh, early teenage years uh, with horrendous uh, uh, ear infections. And I had a half a dozen or so surgeries between the ages of four and 12, I think it is. And when an ear infection hit, but before I could have the surgery or medicine, I would uh, be lying in bed all night, most of the night awake. And it happened that one of the things that helped those nights the most and you can imagine this in a 9, 10, or 11-year-old, um, how odd this might sound. But one of the things that helped me the most was listening to talk radio. And back then, talk radio at night was Larry King. And I can't remember the uh, the hurricane. Uh, I believe it was in the late 80s. It could have been. It had to have been in the late 80s. Because um, I remember the house where we were when this happened. Uh, I had a horrible ear infection, and at the same time, there was uh, a hurricane along the southeastern coast of the United States, and what uh, kept me company that entire night was Larry King reporting on this hurricane, so I remember that very vividly. Uh, There has always been a sense of uh, wanting to do something like this, and 
A few years ago, I had the idea of doing something called Golden Bow Radio. Uh, James George Fraser's huge collection of mythology and folklore called The Golden Bow uh, is not only in the public domain, but also immensely entertaining. It's very well written, and the, the works that he quotes from are, are really well written as well. Uh, these are Victorian uh, storytellers, basically. Um, and I thought that that might be an option as well. I thought about that for a, a few years. Uh, I don't know, about starting about 10 years ago, probably, but it never happened. It's possible that there will be episodes here eventually that will incorporate that idea, but that never got off the ground. Then sometime last year, I heard, I think, Michael Moore on uh, a talk show mentioning that he now had a podcast and that it was with this company called Anchor, this hosting platform called Anchor, and that it was the easiest thing in the world to do. And I figured I should try that. I found Anchor right away, and it is as advertised by Michael Moore. Um, usually these episodes are either recorded at night, after I've spent uh, a day with my four-year-old daughter, or they are recorded in the parking lot of wherever I am during the day when my uh, four-year-old daughter is at home. And basically what I was looking for was uh, some way of recording a reading or a talk like this that I could record, record well, a good audio quality, and then drive home, or in this case now, just head upstairs, uh, trim the first few and the first, uh, or in the last few seconds off the recording, uh, write up a brief description and post it, basically all on my phone, and that is what I have been able to do. And I'm saying all this now because now, this episode, uh, six months later, uh, is it five months later, five or six months later, is the 100th episode, if you believe the counting of uh, iTunes. And I certainly never imagined to, to have gotten here, let alone to have gotten here this quickly, nor could I have really imagined what, um, what this uh, space could have become in just five months. To get back to October 8th, and by the way, for those who don't really care why, why uh, the reasons why this podcast exists, you can just press stop if you haven't already and uh, go listen to something else. But uh, for those who are interested, I thought this would be um, this would be a good excuse to do it. Usually, you get the manifesto and the reason in episode one, and it seemed it might be worthwhile to try and do the excuse and the reason for a new podcast at episode 100 at least. Um, so the day before Louise Glick won the Nobel Prize in Literature uh, was Wednesday, October 7th, and that was the day that uh, Kamala Harris and Mike Pence had their first vice presidential debate. And my wife and I felt a uh, uh, a grudging obligation to watch it. Um, but it just so happened that we spent the, I think it came out at nine o'clock that night. We spent the first hour or two before then 
watching a documentary on Amazon Prime called Ted Bundy Falling for a Killer. And the difference between this documentary about Ted Bundy and all the others is that this documentary focuses just as much on the, the women, the victims of Ted Bundy, as well as his girlfriend at the time, and uh, how she dealt with the reality of what Ted Bundy was. I think it says fairly early on that it is uh, a feminist take on serial killers. Um, Ted Bundy is not a uh, some sort of anti-hero. He's not mythologized. He's not uh, glamorized or romanticized. Um, and it's 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 an astonishing documentary to watch. The only thing I wish they had done a little more graphically, but you can understand why, because it would be so graphic was to describe exactly what Ted Bundy did to his victims so you understand in even more clear detail why such a person does not need to be uh, glamorized or made into some kind of uh, some kind of anti-hero. But so so we watched the first hour or two of that documentary and then watched the the debate between the two candidates for vice president in the United States of America in the year 2020. And my wife and I, at the end of the debate, both had kind of the same thought. We may have uh, put it a different way, but the thought was basically, I would rather watch a documentary about Ted Bundy than I would uh, this debate between two highly educated adult human beings who are running for the second most powerful office in the most powerful country in the world. Uh, it was astonishing to see these two people, um, no matter who you voted for, I, I, don't, have, I don't have a problem saying that um, the candidates on both sides were obviously very intelligent. They've spent their entire lives um, in this field trying to reach this office or other offices. Uh, I believe that they're both lawyers. And it was just incredible to see the how cheapened language could become when the stakes were so high. It was kind of queasy to see how cowardly both sides were in their use of language and their uh, in their ability to respond to questions or not respond to them or twist to them uh, to answer another question entirely, etc., etc. I don't think any of this will come as a surprise to anyone listening to this, but it just struck me very deeply, uh, especially that night, that we were able to get more humanity, more sincerity more uh, good feeling from a documentary about a serial killer than we were from a vice presidential debate. And I think that is when um, the real goal of this podcast sort of uh, came to the front of my mind. And that is the idea that every single day uh, language is being abused not just to tell lies, but just to uh, tell half lies, to, uh, to tell bad stories, to tell uh, shitty stories, um, 
to just tell ridiculous things that have no bearing whatsoever on anybody's life except to distract them. Um, and, and in the case of the debates, uh, the answer as to why they answered the questions they, the way they did, obviously, is because uh, a gaffe or a misspoken statement or a, a bad answer, um, all of it is so scripted because it has to be, because of the way we deal with politics, because of the way we deal with language, because of the way we are militantly on one side or the other. And so the entire thing, uh, and because it's on television, because it's a visual medium, uh, it, it's all, it almost matters as much uh, how you look as, as how you sound, and it matters almost more how you sound as it matters what you say. Um, I heard of one person, at least, who uh, was just annoyed with uh, Kamala Harris's uh, uh, facial expressions during the debate. Um, I mean, it's down to that to that level. Um, and by the way, it's significant that I'm not even mentioning the first presidential debate, which I think took place uh, earlier that week, uh, which is not worth mentioning at all in this context except to say that it is uh, even further down to the bottom of the barrel than this one was. So that I, under I understand what people would say. This is, this is why they had to answer the questions the way they did. This is why the language seemed so cheap. This is why their motives seemed so shady on both sides for the entire hour. And, but then again, that's just more reason for why I felt the need uh, to do this podcast. The motive for that, which was uh, to um, to repeat it again, was the idea that language is being abused every day. Language is not being put to its highest use, hardly at all, in the popular culture, let alone on the news or uh, or on the political stage. And this was only reinforced uh, after the election took place. Because as we all remember and would like to forget, there was that uh, that whole first night and the the week, week and a half or so of trying to figure out who won, and then the month, months after that, of uh, dealing with those who did not believe the results. Um, I don't care to get into any of that, but because what struck me um, was that these... Uh, 24-hour cable news stations had to be on all the time reporting on possible news of the election all the time. And it was incredible to me that, again, these uh, highly educated, obviously very intelligent people, even if you don't think that what people learn in college is actually education, it's uh, even if you're cynical about that, and I understand if you are, it's still obvious that many of the people you see on TV, if you take away the suits and the makeup and the cue cards and, uh, uh, and the elocution lessons and, and all the rest of it, all the staginess, um, it's clear that they know what they're talking about and that many of them do have a passion for this country and for America and for uh, the news and for the uh, electoral process and all of that. But it struck me, what struck me most of all, again, was that you had these 
was that it became necessary for these people to be on 24 hours a day and that they were capable seamlessly. I, I never saw anyone flub even one moment um, or stutter. Uh, it became obvious that they, they were able to just continue to talk endlessly for hours and hours. They were able to repeat what they had just said 15 minutes before as if it were breaking news. And that clued me into the second, uh, second thing that I, that I hoped this podcast could become. And that is that outside of, uh, the readings of, uh, other people's writing that I do here, which I try to do without any mistakes. And usually, if I if I make a mistake in in reading a poem, at least, I will start it over and do my best to not have any mistakes, at least in reading poetry. Um, but I realized I don't want to be that person who can do that. I don't want to be able to talk that easily for that amount of time about nothing. Uh, or about something that I just said. I want for there to be space for that silence that I just gave. I want there to be an ability for uh, whoever it is listening to this now to hear me take a drink of water and maybe hear the sound of my throat as I swallow it, or, or if, if I happen to or something like that. I want that to be there and to have it not matter. Who cares? Um, I want these ums and these ahs, by the way. I try to keep uh, them to a minimum. I hope that I've uh, gotten a little better at them. But at the same time, I don't want to get rid of them completely. I have learned a great deal, for instance, from uh, the the great courses lectures uh, that, the, that the teaching company puts out. I can't tell you how many hours and hours and hours either uh, in audio or video that I've spent with their lectures where uh, a clear expert in whatever field can go on for a half hour per lecture and up to 24, 36, or 48 lectures go through an entire subject and there's an arc to each half hour, and there's a beginning and an end. Um, I appreciate that immensely. If you're if you're trying to uh, learn the bare bones of something, and you're not really interested in the personality of the person who is talking, I am immensely grateful for the time that I've spent with that. But uh, and while I think they're a step up, obviously, from uh, people on the news who who are basically just repeating things that they just said over and over again. I also don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the equivalent of a college lecturer who has uh, an entire uh, lecture uh, memorized by heart almost and can walk into a classroom uh, and just basically put it on autopilot. I heard uh, something on the radio once, uh, a, a podcast from, uh, from the UK, 
I believe it was about uh, the Industrial Revolution, and there were three guests and a moderator, and they were talking about the pros and cons, etc. And and one of the guests, one, I mean, they were all uh, university professors, and one of them gave a, a speech of like a minute describing what it was that they were saying. I can't remember what their point was. And when they got to the end of what they were saying, the, the person hosting the show said, can you please repeat that or can you clarify that? And the person paused and sort of flubbed and stuttered and said, uh, no, actually I can't. And I'm not saying I'm beyond this, but that was an example of, of someone who was able to almost speak from uh, uh, a well of knowledge that they had where they, where they were able to speak about something effusively but not actually be saying anything. Um, and I don't want to do that either. I would really like to avoid doing that. Although at the same time, what I've noticed uh, in these in these passages in these posts, either in introducing a poem or um, reading from a myth or reading from a book and doing commentary in between it, I've noticed very often that the the push to keep talking, to not have silence, to not take too long. Uh, to have that silent sound of me thinking of what to say. I've noticed the, the impulse for me to just keep talking, and I know that I've said things that are inaccurate or are exaggerations. I know I've said this is one of the greatest books I've ever read or something like that. I don't mean that I've told lies or uh, anything obviously untrue. I just mean that... Uh, just the, the, the format itself of allowing someone to just speak and assuming they're assuming that someone is going to listen makes you want to just keep talking and talking and fill up this time. And sometimes it's true that something wrong or inaccurate comes out and I have a, a lot more respect for uh, people who are in the public because it is, uh, I can imagine now, only imagine now, how easy it must be to have the kind of gaffe that can ruin your career. I also encountered, uh, in line with uh, uh, the debates and the election coverage, years ago I met uh, uh, an academic and a novelist who had uh, gone to his share of Ivy League schools and I believe his wife had, and I'm pretty sure at the time he was teaching at one of them. And he knew that I came from rural Ohio, uh, suburban Ohio, and he knew that um, I had dropped out of college and that the college I had been to uh, wasn't a name, and, and besides that didn't mean very much to me. And I was running a small press at the time and publishing a lot of very interesting people, and he could see that I had my heart and my enthusiasm in it. But as someone who had come from the Ivy League, as he did, he sort of told me, uh, 
as a bit of advice, you know, at some point you're going to have to lose the, uh, um, can't remember the word he used. Basically, you will, you're going to have to learn how to talk to people at these colleges. You're going to have to learn how, I guess, how professors deal with other professors. Uh, you're going to have to learn how to, basically, how the, the, um, uh, I can't think of the word now, obviously. You're just going to have to learn how to act in a different atmosphere, is basically what he was saying, an academic, serious atmosphere. And and then, uh, fairly recently, connected to this, I heard of uh, a young woman who was going off to, to college who got a full ride, uh, I believe, to do creative writing. And I had heard a story about her that she she made the point on purpose of uh, in high school of uh, of studying the books and reading the books that her teachers liked the best so that she could you know get on their good side and uh, she sort of laughed when someone described this as being manipulative etc um, and that could be what uh, my Ivy League person had in mind as well uh, a few years ago. I thought it was amusing to come across uh, a poet who who did his doctorate on, let me see if I can find his name, on John Ashbery. And, of course, a few years ago, if you're going to do your doctorate on John Ashbery, uh, and if you go to the right school, you'll be able to meet John Ashbery, and then you'll probably be able to meet John Ashbery's other influential friends. And it did so happen that uh, when this uh, when this doctorate uh, degree was done, uh, the author of it uh, was also a poet, published his first book of poetry, and I'm fairly certain he had a blurb from John Ashbery and Harold Bloom on his book. And, um, and it was very hard for me not to see that cynically, uh, the ease with which it appeared anyway, that someone had played the game and to keep it with uh, with the debate with language with uh, the news with um, all of this stuff um, and with my uh, earlier uh, episode on my own stubbornness I'm sure it is partly my own stubbornness that I don't even want to do that I don't want to play the game I want to write and here, I want to share the things that uh, mean the most to me, and I think over the course of a hundred episodes that I've found a way to do it, anyone who uh, has a comment to agree or to say otherwise, please do email me. Um, and so that one of the, one of the last things that I was almost certain, excuse me, that I was almost certain would become a part of this podcast was um, right around the time uh, of the debates and everything else, I came upon interviews with the uh, former Google employee named Tristan Harris, who uh, has been everywhere lately, uh, railing against the uh, evils and the, the real damage of uh, social media, social media companies, especially on the minds of uh, 
young people and teenagers, but as we know from uh, recent elections, it's basically anybody who can read and who has a, uh, a brain susceptible to, uh, to the drug of social media. Uh, it turns out that Tristan Harris has his own podcast about all of these things, and it's called Your Undivided Attention. And anyone who's interested in the, the topic of what social media does to our brains um, should go and listen to it. Uh, the old story of how um, uh, grocery stores put milk in the back because milk is what people are going to buy, so they make you go through the whole store, uh, is basically exploded exponentially. Um, there's a wonderful story that uh, that he gets out of another writer in, in an episode uh, describing how casinos are designed architecturally to be addictive. And the one point that I remembered was that... Um, uh, they are built with no right angles. Everything is a curve. Everything is flowing into each other. There's no place to stop. You're always going, going. And I believe one of the other points was that they, you, uh, you build uh, chairs like it's uh, like it's slot machines that are basically like wombs where people can get really comfortable and just sit there for hours staring at their screen, uh, trying to win money, and. And then he would tie it back to basically how social media companies are doing the exact same thing. I was so enthused to share some of this on this podcast to take a handful of the really good interviews that Tristan Harris has done and just cut and paste the best of them um, and splice them into episodes here and uh, comment myself on them. But at some point, uh, that became sort of a useless idea. It's something that interests me immensely, the idea of advertising and uh, what social media is doing with advertising, poisoning our brains, basically. But I didn't want to add to that. Um, I thought that I, I thought that it would be an interesting thing to really delve into now that I found a sort of accessible expert whose work I could uh, uh, draw from. But I almost immediately became alienated from it and I stopped listening to the podcast because there are other things to do. Uh, I don't know how someone like Tristan Harris can, first of all, spend all the time he did at Google doing what he did at Google and then now spending all of his time um, on the other side of it trying to undo what he did, I guess. I guess they are two sides of the same coin in that case. So that the idea was basically, uh, as it has developed, to give the world what one person loves and has passion for. Uh, in this case, what has grown up in a hundred episodes has been mostly poetry, some prose, uh, eventually towards uh, the latter, uh, the second half, the uh, last few months, has been bringing in mythology, um, and now seeing if it's possible for someone like me, someone who most people, even at family gatherings, uh, never hear talk at all, uh, 
if it's possible for someone like myself to speak in a long-form way like this with only a bare outline of what I'd like to say and the, the page I have here is maybe 30 words uh, of what I wanted to say here today and to see if that uh, is worthwhile uh, to see if it's worthwhile to jump from uh, uh, Gilgamesh to Egyptian myths to now Celtic mythology to jump from Robinson Jeffers to Laurie Scheck to Louise Glick to um, HD I've been reading a lot of her lately uh, to simply read a book and comment in the middle of it in the way that uh, uh, a college lecture might be if I had ever become a teacher like many people have told me I should have and I think that that's basically it uh, language is abused every single day so is it possible to throw poems out there new poems that people have never heard before old poems that people are familiar with and think they know or are tired of is it possible to present them again and some some of you out there might think that I've sort of uh, uh, filled out the list of 100 episodes I've gotten into the habit of taking uh, a book of poetry by a poet like Ted Hughes you spend five days, each day has one poem from him. And on the sixth day, combine all five of those poems into one new post and say, here are five poems from this book of poetry. Even that, I think, is very intentional and can be pretty illuminating. The difference between hearing one poem, one off, no comment, no other poems, um, and then a few days later, hearing the same poem, surrounded by other ones from the same book, and capped off by an introduction. Is that interesting? Is that helpful? Does that tell us something about the poet's mind? Does it tell us something about the listener or the reader's mind? Uh, is it possible for language at its highest use to be used uh, on a platform uh, like uh, podcasts where the goal is not to entertain but uh, sort of to give the best of humanity. Is that even possible to do and to find listeners? Um, I'm certainly nowhere near the audience of Joe Rogan, but it's uh, it's been a surprise to discover that uh, people are listening and for this 100th episode um, I just wanted to thank whoever you are out there that uh, that is listening and I hope you continue to do so in the future any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to human voices wake us the number one at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. 
The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie. 